This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. You ever seen people cut up the podcast episodes and like put the little 10 second clip on, on, on Twitter and Instagram and stuff? If we, ever, if we do that for this episode, the, the quote <laughs> of the episode is Santi saying, if you don't use these systems, then fuck off. So Santi, honestly, get honestly, you. yes. <laughs> Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. GM, sir. GM, sir. How's it going? You, uh, you back in action? You've been traveling a lot, huh? I have, I have. I'm back in the hood. Um, I'm loving it. A lot to talk about. How are you? Yes, we do. Um, I'm all right. I'm all right. I would say, I would say, uh, a lot of uh, pros of being a uh, founder, and uh, things are always things are. I usually wake up on the right side of the bed, and usually things are pretty good. Today is one of the uh, one of the tough days. So, but this is the highlight of my week. it, so I'm it has increasingly become the highlight of my week as well, for what it's worth. Yeah. You know, I, I now tend to think about what am I going to do Thursday? Where am I going to be? And where am I going to be recording this? Which to me is super important. So, Yeah, this is my uh, zone everything else out. I close Slack. I've got about 600 texts, emails, and Slack messages <laughs> I have to respond to. And mm-hmm. let's not even open yeah. Telegram and Discord. So uh, this is, uh, this is yeah. the time to lock in. So I'm excited for this one. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, all right, man, before we jump in, a couple updates. One is that we uh, launched a new job, and uh, we launch Indeed. new jobs all the time at BlockWorks, but the exciting reason that I bring it up here is because it is a podcast job. Uh, we are, uh, yeah. Santiago and I are hiring a full-time, uh, this is a full-time role, crypto podcast producer to basically just mm-hmm. 10x empire. Uh, you know, Santi and I have a, a pretty ambitious goal, I'd say, to make this the number one show in crypto, right? When we kind of looked at the state of podcasts about a year ago, mm-hmm. and maybe six months ago, and started talking about this, uh, a lot of the podcasts didn't kind of serve the need that we felt uh, need, you know, w- was, was really needed in crypto, which is like a non-biased uh, crypto show that's kind of all-encompassing of the industry. It's not a Bitcoin show. It's not an ETH show. It's just kind of an overview on just what's happening in the industry with A, the smartest minds in the uh, in the space, and then B, kind of like an inside look. So, you know, I think things have been going pretty well. The show's growing like crazy right now, and it's time that we bring on a full-time producer to help us grow it. So if you spend all of your days listening to, the pod- to podcasts, if you like the show, if you want to work with Santi and me, if you spend all your time on crypto Twitter, uh, and this sounds like a role for you, and if you're a hustler, uh, let us know. DM Santi, DM me, uh, and we can move this forward. So, Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of people have come to me and say, hey, are you hiring? I'm like, well, I haven't really found a need to hire. I mean, even though like increasingly so, like for, for what I do, just investing, right? But this is a great opportunity. You know, I, I think we, it, it not only is an opportunity to stay on top of a lot of things in crypto, which is what we aim to do in this podcast, but also to get to know both of us. I think, you know, a lot of people ask me like, so, so why, why are you doing what you're doing now? And I said to me, like, this is the highest impact that one can have because I don't, you, you Jason and I, we agree because in the sense that for a long time, it's felt that 
a lot of the content that is being created in crypto, a lot of the times when we try to explain crypto to people, it's defensive, it's trying to sell the moon, it's over-promising. We like to be objective here, clinical, bring in data, and I think it's working. And, you know, obviously, if you don't like it, and we always are up for criticism, but I think the, the, the goal here is to become the number one podcast in crypto, and then, you know, over time, you know, top, top podcasts in business, right? And so I think uh, this is a great opportunity, and I'm really excited to work with whoever decides to come on. Yeah, exactly. I would say this is probably a 12-month role that is perfect for someone who eventually wants to move either as into the like research side of crypto or into a fund. If you eventually want to go into a fund, go into the buy side, go on to maybe move on to a research team somewhere and want to get even deeper, this is a perfect entry level role into the industry. So hey, hey, look, you also maybe, uh, get to... Maybe, maybe PSYOPs, maybe PSYOPs, maybe I'll just hire this person full-time to also do investing. There you go, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Maybe PSYOPs, I don't know, but you know, option value. I will say the down, there's a big downside of the role, which is you'll have to deal with uh, all of Santiago's stickers on Telegram. Like no, nobody fires off stickers. <laughs> Like tel- like uh, like Zanti does on Telegram. So, I yeah. just stopped. I, I just stopped communicating. <laughs> I just sent stickers. If a team uh, if a team out there does not have stickers, the probability of me investing in them just radically goes down. There was a period <laughs> in time where I was talking mainly to you and then the team over at Friction. And there's like no. a combination of you and Friction, and it's just only stickers. I'm like, does anyone use boards anymore? <laughs> no, they're really not. Yeah. So all right. Um, Let's move on. We've got today. We're going to cover a couple big things. I don't even know if we'll have time for the news. Uh, maybe we'll probably skim over the news at the very end. But there's so much happening. One is the wormhole hack. I want to start there. Two is actually a MakerDAO proposal uh, that I find really interesting. It, it, it's a little bit dated. It happened like a week or two ago. Um, but there's a really interesting MakerDAO proposal that came out of Parify, where you used to work. We had Ben Foreman on the show the other day. Mm-hmm. He talked about the fact that he was excited about Maker. Maybe that was leaking a little bit of alpha. Uh, and so the MakerDAO proposal, I want to cover that. We will- ben, by but for what it's worth, Ben is the biggest. So, so a lot of times partners don't have to agree on everything. This is one where Ben is the biggest MKR bull that I've met in my life, and and, and it's incredible. So, but uh, there's a lot to talk about there. It's yeah, amazing. a lot to talk about there. I also want to get your take on just this punks debacle, and I feel like Larva Labs is like trying to screw punks almost, but like maybe I'm getting this totally wrong. I'm like, how are the price price? How are punks still doing well when Larva Labs, the creator, still is almost trying to like just demonize this community and tear people apart? But maybe I'm reading it totally wrong. I don't own a punk, I've so I want to get your take. Um, and then the last thing is just I'm starting to have this conviction that everyone is getting DAOs wrong and the importance of DAOs. And I think a lot of people are focusing on the, on the governance. And I think it's about com- something completely different. So we'll get into that near the end. So let's talk first about the wormhole hack. If you were, if you are on Twitter, if you own a Twitter and you are in crypto, you probably saw this big wormhole hack the other day. Uh, wormhole is a really popular bridge for connecting Ethereum and Solana. Um, there was a hack that originally started at 80 I think, yeah, I think it was 80 ETH and then added an extra 40 ETH. Am I getting these numbers right? Anyways, I was looking at the dollar amounts. It uh, started at 250 million. Uh, then the hack became, the exploit became over 325 million. Uh, Wormhole is one of the most popular bridges. And for people who don't know much about bridges, cross-chain, cross-chain bridges often work by taking an asset such as ETH lock and locking it in a contract to issue a parallel asset on the bridge t- chain. Uh, so what happened is, uh, I won't get into the technicals of like what actually happened here and how it happened, um, but really like the way to understand Wormhole is it's a bridge and it's a way to move crypto assets between different blockchains. Um, I think the hack is pretty important because it raised alarms in kind of DeFi circles because it now means that the or before they ended up backstopping it, it meant that the ETH 
that was had been bridged to Solana was unbacked. Thankfully, Wormhole stepped in and backstopped it. Uh, but that kind of drew out questions of like, wow, okay, that's a $300 million backstop. Uh, that's a lot to backstop for some hacked ETH. That's a lot to backstop for a, for a startup company to come in. Blockworks sure as hell doesn't have 300 million sitting in our bank account. Uh, and so then it drew questions to, okay, where's this money coming from? Then people remembered that Jump Capital had purchased Wormhole developer, uh, who was at Certus One back in August, 2021. Um, so maybe this is some jump money. I'm totally speculating here. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I think the important thing to know is like, if... They, if this didn't get backstopped, a number of the Solana-based platforms that accept ETH as collateral could potentially have just gone insolvent pretty quickly. Um, right? If nobody backs it and the, the coins are truly gone, then wormhole ETH is worth zero. And everyone who has a balance of that wormhole ETH, becomes it becomes worthless, right? DeFi protocols, users, everyone. So what is your take on this? What am I missing? Why is this important? What does this mean for the space? What are the second order implications? Well, there's a lot. I mean, I'll start with one, which is we always, we talk a lot about interoperability between chains, uh, layer one chains. So in this case, something like Ethereum bridging to Solana. And, and you know, a, a bridge is necessary to do that. Uh, so from that perspective, it obviously puts into question as Vitalik, who as always is kind of years ahead of, of most people, alluded to this potential concern around the security problems with bridges and different from L2s that are built on top of the L1, like Arbitrum Optimism. Um, there are different kinds of bridges. It's very, it's one of those areas that has a lot of different teams trying to build these bridges because it can be pretty lucrative and it's a big opportunity. In theory, you know, why wouldn't you want a bridge and have that flexibility? In practice, of course, this is not fun <clears throat> because you're essentially it increases more of the surface area of you need to think about the security concerns of three things, I guess, both L1s and the bridge and the trust assumptions that you're making. And there are a whole, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of perhaps the most difficult um, problems to solve as I understand them. Um, and so it's important from that perspective. Uh, it's obviously, you know, every time there is this type of hack, if you let's call it a hack, um, it's, it's, it certainly puts into question, especially from people outside in saying, Hey guys, like why do this? Right. You, you know, I forget the amount, but the number of hacks and the magnitude of these hacks keeps growing in a very meaningful way. And so it's sort of a side effect of innovation, I think, but it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like the let's move, let's move fast and break things, which is inherent in web two. Like this is sort of the term that coined by Facebook, like Mark Zuckerberg in crypto, you, you, you are forced to kind of move fast because it's open source, but you can't break things. The problem is smart contracts, like there's no one at hundred number. Uh, sometimes you deploy stuff and that's it, right? It's a very adversarial environment, which is sort of the state we're on. So it's just important to like step back and say, yeah, it's super experimental. This is why yields are high. This is like, there is a lot of risk in crypto <clears throat> interacting with these contracts and yeah, code is law, but sometimes the code breaks and then the law and then therefore, <laughs> you know, everything stumbles upon that. So, you know, obviously it's interesting that um, Jump, I think, is going to foot the bill and backstop it and, you know, bring things back to, to normal. But, uh, yeah, you know, th yeah. those are my high-level thoughts. It's, it's not fun to see it, of course. So Yeah, yeah, of course. I think, um, I mean, yesterday I saw a lot of, like, told-you-sos on Twitter 
Um, I think that it's important to remember that this is not like a told you so moment. So the, the, the told you so's were like about trustless bridges, uh, versus like multi-sig bridges, like trustless bridges are like roll-ups and multi-sig bridges are wormhole. Um, but that's not really what happened here. This wasn't a case of compromised keys. It was just a good old fashioned smart contract bug. And that can happen on, on, you know, quote unquote, trustless bridges, roll-ups as well too. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's just noting worth noting that some of the criticisms against wormhole security model are kind of irrelevant here this was just a mm-hmm. smart contract bug this can happen to yeah. anybody uh, can happen to anything whether it's a multi-sig or roll-up bridge um mm-hmm. i think the way that this there's this guy uh who's at kelvin victor um who kind of broke down how this actually happened and for those who haven't read what happened is like a quick uh, summary of it is uh, there was 80,000, uh, 80,000, 80K ETH pulled out of the wormhole contract on Ethereum in a single transaction. Basically, wormhole has a set of guardians that sign off on transfers between ch- uh, chains. It's a bit more complicated than that, but in practice, that's the general idea. Uh, the trans- transaction that pulled out 80K ETH was actually the attacker transferring 80K ETH from Solana to Ethereum. Um, so the the wormhole like quote unquote guardians had basically signed off on this ADK ETH transfer as if it was 100% legit, and that was only possible um, because the attacker was able to mint wormhole ETH on Solana, so they were able to correctly withdraw it back to to Ethereum. Um, I rec- we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. I'm not. I can't explain this entire thing and how it happened, but mm-hmm. there are a couple of folks, one guy from Paradigm, uh, and then this guy, Kelvin Fichter, who did a really nice job of breaking it down. So mm-hmm. what, what I think is more interesting here, though, Santi, is like, like what, what ends up happening here? Um, mm-hmm. Does this suggest that liquidity on an L1 is less mobile than one might think? Presumably, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think like the, the... Okay, so it puts into question this idea of interoperability and moats that Ethereum, particularly Ethereum has, right? And so before you would have said, before this, you probably would have said, hey, listen, you kind of envision a world where it's so easy to move between, let's call it cities of Ethereum, Solana, Terra, you know, uh, Polkadot, Cosmos. And now it's like, wait a minute, uh, let, let's, let's actually think critically about where we're going, what we're, what we're building. Um, and so, it, you know, it's certainly in my, in my brain, it, it, it does put in a question that I've been a big advocate of, of this in, in theory and in kind of principle like principle like happening but in practice like i don't know uh look it's a smart contract but it's a smart contract but like doesn't necessarily mean that another another bridge can't work so i don't want to make like overblown c- conclusions but it, it just puts into question this idea of maybe maybe you know it's 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 gonna let's say differently market participants are going to be cautious now of using bridges and at least for a while though and so until the dust settles you know I think it's it's going to be, you know, something you're going to look at and say, well, you know, if there's all these like assets that are being pledged in one chain to interact in another chain, you know, is it worth? It's it's not an incremental real risk that you're going to feel because of these events. And and then, I guess the other question is like, who who actually gets hurt the most? In this case, my estimation, is Solana, right? And the Solana protocols um, that could potentially be very insolvent very quickly and it, it and sort of like has a cascading effect on liquidations and then it just spirals out of control and then and then what's i wonder like entertaining and maybe we should have like security research coming what what would have happened if you don't plug and foot that like essentially drain funds like does that mean that DeFi and solana collapses um does that mean 
what does that do to then the price of soul? Um, you know, you have to think about, okay, what's being pledged? Like, okay, ETH is being locked in one chain to then interact in another, you know, then, you know, probably Ethereum doesn't necessarily like get, get, it doesn't get impacted as much, I would say. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. It, it also just makes me think about moats that something, a protocol, a network like Ethereum has. Because if that's where most of the activity has happened historically, then is this going to then force people to think more critically of should I be going to another ecosystem and or how am I going to make this hop? I think if you really want to go to Solana, then you may not like use a bridge, you may like just, I would hate to say it, but you know, use a centralized solution. Like you go to FTX or you go to deposit in one exchange, then translate to another. Speaking of centralized solutions, I mean, gotta say kind of lame that jump, like we're all using wormhole and like just that, you know, when you kind of un unveil the curtains, jump owns jump. One of the largest make it market makers in the world owns wormhole. It's like, what happened to, uh, all this decentralization stuff, right? One of the largest traditional market makers owns the cross chain bridge. So this is, but it's also, it's also the case that most people continue to use centralized solutions. Look, like it, it, it's unrealistic to assume that, um, you know, most people are going to be truly, truly decentralized. I think it's I mean, okay, most people, oh, wait, a, wait a minute, I'm going to push back on that. Most people use USDC. Okay. Like, you know, you like center owned by co a partnership between Coinbase and, uh, and Circle. And I believe there's another party can just freeze your assets, can freeze the yeah. entire, most of the systems in DeFi use USDC. And th this is no different. That's kind of the state that we're in. Yeah. I, um, I mean, we'll talk more about this one when, when we get into the DAO stuff, but I think that it is, uh, that is symbolic of some of folks misunderstanding why DeFi and things like this are so interesting. I think a lot of people tie it back to this is like censorship resistant finance. Mm -hmm. In my mind, this is just a better technology, right? For anyone who's used the traditional banking system, it's completely archaic. ACH was built in like 1972. That means we're using financial technology that's literally 2022, 1972, 50 years old. So DeFi and a lot of this stuff is just a better technology and it doesn't have to be completely decentralized. I think um, there, are, there's two, there are two things I want to talk about here and then we can move on to the maker stuff. One is my first thought went to, immediately went to, since all the ETH on Solana just went to zero, how quickly are these AMMs going to get drained? And then it's, you know, how long until the lending protocols are uncollateralized, right? So this, you know, I think one of the, I think there's so many benefits of composability, but one of the downsides is like, if something happens some, somewhere in DeFi, it oftentimes um, uh, flows down to a lot of the other projects. Um, no, you could say the exact same thing about 2008, like the 2008 recession, right? Uh, yeah, to some extent. Yeah, like it's like superfluid collateral. Yeah, it's like superfluid collateral. It's as much. It's it's atomic. It's atomic. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's in yeah superfluid in in crypto. Yeah. So. Yeah, and by the way, there, there there's no way to call a central bank and say, "Hey, bail me out." You know, I'm totally insolvent. Um, no, you can't so, call yeah, central I mean, bank. It, you can only call uh, SBF or jump. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's it's uh, with composability, you know, you have this idea that you're only as strong as your weakest link. And when you introduce bridges, it adds another dimension uh, that increases the surface area of these attack vectors. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it, it's interesting, right? Um, 
again, it, it, I would love to have either Sam uh, and or folks at Jump come on the pod and talk about like where we go from here and how does this affect the development of the, the DeFi ecosystem in Solana? How does this impact the value proposition of bridges? Um, and, and, you know, I understand it was a smart contract bug, uh, but also, uh, you know, I, I, I've invested in a few bridges. I've, I've been cautious in the category. I think I, I like to see them work uh, because, again, it just adds more benefit to the space if you're able to interact in multiple chains with different use cases. But, you know, it, it is it is very experimental still. And one of the, you know, so so I think it, it's probably warranted to have like a podcast a roundtable discussion with a, a lot of the different bridge operators to, to really inform users of the type of risks to your point here around sometimes a bridge is a multi-sig and obviously in that case keys can be compromised and and you're trusting that this set of participants you know coordinate in, in a way that is trustworthy uh, so you're placing some trust and IE risk in, in, in these institutions in these parties that you know are in the multi-sig other times it's a trustless bridge and in this case you know smart contracts can break and you know it, it's i don't know i don't know what's actually worse you know because if a smart contract breaks it can you put a halt on it can you pause it whereas a multi-sig if keys get compromised or you know it's, it's just a different risk that you're taking so i mean i don't want to dwell too much on this but i think it's warranted to have a really good roundtable discussion with with a lot yeah. of the people that are building on this and, and just saying where do we go from here yeah, we actually uh, just booked the CEO of Jump Crypto, uh, so Kanav will be coming on the show in a couple of weeks. So that'll be exciting. Sure. I um, last thing here, and the reason we're spending so much time on this, this is I think the second biggest DeFi hack of all time. So I do think it's warranted to have a little mm-hmm. bit of a conversation and to yeah. figure out what the second order implications are here. And uh, one thing that the uh, kind of big brain thing that comes to mind is like, okay, ETH layer twos are going to do better here, uh, maybe. But actually, the I think bigger brain thing here is that layer zeros are going to do well. And just a quick overview on layer zeros. Um, the two biggest layer zeros are Polkadot and Cosmos, right? So layer zero protocols are kind of the ground floor for all blockchain protocols. And the difference is like while layer one projects allow for dApps to be built on a blockchain, um, like an example here would be Uniswap and Aave getting built on Ethereum. Layer zero mm-hmm. projects allow for entire blockchains to be built on top of them. So for example, like Terra um, or like Binance Chain was built using the Cosmos SDK. I think Polygon was also built using the Cosmos SDK, uh, you know, which is Cosmos' like customizable framework for building blockchains. Uh, and the reason that this is going to be bullish for layer zeros is that you know, not only do layer zeros allow for blockchains to be built on top of them, but they also allow for cross-chain interoperability between the layer one projects. And that kind of mm-hmm. means that different blockchains can communicate with each other, which is, of course, a feature that is really missing on layer ones. And the mm-hmm. way that I understand it, and I could be wrong here, is like right now, Ethereum can't really talk to Solana. Um, but if you have uh, two different blockchains that were built on the Cosmos SDK, they would be able to talk to each other. And so mm-hmm. now they're interoperable. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the short and like, why are layer zeros necessary? Like the short and simple answer is that just layer one protocols have a lot of limitations and layer zero fixes them. So like one is usability, mm-hmm. one is scale, uh, scalability. Um, and, and actually the list goes on. So I think this is quite bullish for things like Cosmos and Polkadot. Yeah, I, I think so as well. It also, I guess, um, to your point, you know, it, it also perhaps puts more emphasis on layer twos, which when we talked about our predictions um, earlier this year or, la- or, or late last year, I was a little bit 
Uh, I, I would have thought that there would be more focus on layer twos. I mean, certainly there's a lot of activity in Polygon. Optimism was a little bit delayed. Arbitrum launched. Uh, but it felt to me that a lot of the attention was in just L1s, trying to chase you know, that trade. Um, and I would have thought that there would be probably more emphasis on L2s that, in my estimation, like, okay, there's still, there's still bridging that needs to happen in L2 to L1. Um, and I'm not candidly as technical to explain to you why there are less risks between bridging an L1 to an L2 than an L1 to an L1. Meaning Solana to Ethereum would be L1 to L1. Sol- Ethereum L1 to Optimism or Arbitrum is L1 to L2. Vitalik does a great post about that and, and, and maybe would love to have him on and then really kind of dissect that. Um, because if so, then it just increases the moats of, of a network like Ethereum. Yeah. I think. All right, moving on. Um, yes. If you guys also, if you guys have thoughts on wormhole, DM, DM me. I'm curious to hear them, and we'll probably continue talking about things like this in future episodes. Um, all right, Maker DAO. So Mika yes. from Parify submitted this proposal um, for GB mm-hmm. Maker, uh, which is a proposal to benefit long-term Maker holders. The real quick summary, and then I'm going to let you take this away, is that uh, last week or two weeks ago, Parify submitted a proposal to, repl- I think it was two weeks ago, to replace Maker's current governance voting structure, which is right now that one Maker token equals one vote. Uh, the new proposal is that with a new governance-boosted Maker, GB Maker, uh, essentially Parify is proposing like the VE mechanics, you know, this vote escrow token model that was popularized by Curve that we've talked about in previous episodes, where investors that lock up Maker the longest, uh, I think it's up to four years, are rewarded with more votes without additional incentives. Um, And unlike kind of other recent tokenomic proposals that improved incentives and economic value like uh, like Wi-Fi, which we've also talked about on previous episodes, this maker proposal, um, according to some, lacks in true incentives or utility or value. That is what Arca, uh, the team at Arca kind of claimed, uh, which we can get into as well. So there's actually mm-hmm. a decent bit of support for the proposal. There's a decent bit of pushback from folks like Ar- uh, Arca and others. I'm curious to get your take on this and also mm-hmm. uh, let us know if we're missing anything in just that summary of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a little bit of context for everyone, like, uh, you know, Parify has been super active in perhaps the most active fund historically in, in the maker ecosystem. Um, it is, you know, my former partner, Ben, uh, lives, breathes, thinks about maker, sleeps, dreams about maker. Santi, can you just give an exit, like can, for, break, break down maker for those who don't know, like why is it the backbone of a lot of DeFi? Like, yeah, what, can, without maker, none of the DeFi would have happened. I mean, you needed to have something like maker, which is the bedrock. I call it probably the fed of DeFi because it allowed you to, deposit an asset like Ethereum and mint this stable collateralized coin called DAI. And you essentially mo- like you essentially created parameters of interest rates and, and a certain collateralization ratio that allowed the system to remain solvent. And in, before Maker, like you couldn't have had a money market. You needed to have a stable unit of account in, in any financial system to support all the different use cases you see today. It's like if you deposit, you know what I mean, like a money market well, or a prediction market to settle stuff, like stable coins are pretty powerful, or the Trojan horse or, or the engine that where DeFi runs, right? Um, if you try to pay people, you pay them in stable coins. Most people don't want to accept a volatile asset. And so the idea of depositing a very volatile asset like Ethereum 
in a contract with a certain set of parameters in the smart contract, you know, liquidation ratio, uh, and able to borrow against that, really kind of opened up this DeFi ecosystem. And it was the it was the early things that I was looking at back in the day. This is like 2018, 2019, and saying, wow. So you're telling me that an asset like Ethereum, back back in the day, was single collateral die. I guess it was just it was Psi, I guess, which is now called uh, single collateral, um, and, which is only backed by ETH. The 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 price of ETH collapsed eighty percent, and yet you still had this stable, the, the stability of Dai, the stablecoin, remained like maintained its peg by and large. And I look at that and say, well, this is pretty interesting, right? Because then that sort of to me speaks to the like the anti fragility or the resiliency of the system, which is like wow, like you. This is pretty awesome. Like these contracts are working as intended, and and then and then I think that opens up the imagination to like okay, all the different use cases, right? Uses the die, which is a stablecoin pegged to the dollar, to then you know do so many other things in DeFi uh, or outside of you know just payments or whatever, right? And so that to me was like the first indication that really drew me to DeFi and said, okay, shit, let's let's load up the truck and just solely be focused. And Parify was, in my estimation, the first fund to really say, we're not going to pretend to do everything. We're not going to invest in everything. We just believe, and the thesis is very simple here, which is the most amount of value will accrue to financial functions. And we were just super early in DeFi. And I think we're the first, like really, truly just be solely focused on being a power user of DeFi because we were using this stuff. And we, you know, they're still like using these networks for... And so that that really, I think I'm not surprised to see Parify come now and say, hey, listen, there are drawbacks of Maker. One of them, and we talk about DAOs a lot, one of them is this participation rate. It sucks. Yeah, I mean, I hear the criticism. It's like all these different VCs that are pontificating bullshit about what they think, and they're all not really fully immersed because they're not using these systems. It's very clear in this, <laughs> in this environment. It's so clear the VCs that are actually using and touching the rails and some that are just high level and not don't understand how these systems work because they never use them. They've never been this close to being liquidated on chain. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like there's a different set of appreciation when you're depositing money, non-trivial sums of money, into a contract and saying, how does this actually work? And then waking up one day and saying, holy shit, this is Black Thursday. The markets are down 20, 30%. Am I going to get liquidated? And how does this keeper ecosystem work? How do liquidation bots work? And I think that that's the edge that... I mean, I think we developed, I developed by just being a power user of these networks. So Maker really, just back to, back to it simplistically, I think this proposal, I find it quite interesting because it it allows for better governance, more fluid, like more fluid governance around the people that are actually paying attention. The people that are actually super engaged and long-term believers in this system are going to get a greater share of voting power. And increasingly so, like when I was, a lot of the proposals that I put forth with the team at Parify Back in the day, it was, you know, when Wi-Fi launched. There was a lot of interest in Wi-Fi. Okay, let's add Wi-Fi as collateral. So, so obviously, this entire, like, the, the, the collateral backing die went from just ETH to, US, to other types of collateral forms, right? USDC, which is centralized. There was a lot of criticism there. That came out of Black Friday, Black Thursday. Then there was, um, now you have a whole range of assets, right? Including, in that case... The idea was to put forth proposals to say, hey, let's add Wi-Fi as collateral. Let's add, uh, you know, Aave as collateral, other different assets as collateral, this basket of collateral that will support the peg. And okay, there's still a lot of correlation, but still, that was the idea behind this. And what is interesting in this proposal is it does, I do believe that it increases the incentive for DAOs and projects to hold MKR, to lock it, 
for up to four years, get a greater share of voting power. Because why? Because every project that I've been an investor in, all of them that have a, a token would love to be added in, as a collateral type in maker because it just gives more flex, more utility to your token, right? If you all of a sudden, Jason, have a big bag of Wi-Fi, well, maybe at some point you want to borrow against that because you're long, because you want to do whatever, right? And so MK, allowing and passing a proposal, you need to put forth a proposal say, I want to be, uh, this token needs to be added as collateral and maker, fine. Well, you need to corral all the different token holders to vote for it and then have the team and MK or the risk committee like approve it. And so this, I think, really kind of moves us closer to the direction of, I don't necessarily want a system that has super, you know, super diverse, like super diverse, like constituents. But if none of them are actually paying attention, do you really want a, a system where there's like thousands of people that have this token super widely distributed, but no one's actually put, you know, like actually in the weeds. And I think this kind of brings us closer to a much more focused committee and group that will have the best interest of the system at heart because they're locking their token for years, up to four years, and saying, yeah, we're going to get a greater share, a greater voice. And I've always found, just to wrap all this stuff out, I keep saying it again, right? Like, there are vocal minorities in the systems. Everyone is, sometimes these DAOs feel like a power struggle, and everyone wants to voice their stuff. Everyone loves to be heard. No one really is actually paying attention. Everyone's voting with their feet. Like, I just always remind myself, when I think of governance, I'm very skeptical of on-chain governance. I'm much more of a believer that you ought to elect representative democracies really work because you elect someone that is perhaps the most competent person to, to figure stuff out. If you don't like it, then you can remove them, right? You can dissolve parliament in the UK. You can reelect leaders. And, you know, like every episode, I go back to Luvium. And Luvium, I'm a council member. I serve for three months. If the community doesn't like me, I, I will be removed, right? Someone else will step up. It's not like these four-year government terms, right? Six years, like where people have really no incentive and over time, like they lose touch with their constituent base. Here, I think communities are pretty vocal, but you need to elect competent operators to, to do governance. And so I think this is a step in the, in the right direction. This is exactly what I wanted to get into with the DAO stuff. So DAO, so everybody is viewing DAOs right now as an ability, as a mechanism to have more, more participation in voting from the community, right? Everyone, like if you look on Twitter and like kind of the narrative is that when you have DAOs, you can have entire companies and entire organizations vote on things. And to me, that just does not align with how I believe humans make decisions and how I have no, seen so. companies get built. Uh, and if I, like, and if, if this maker DAO proposal is a good example, there's only, this is a really important proposal, right? This would fundamentally change uh, maker forever. There are only 13 votes on the thing, right? And that, is not surprising to me though, because that aligns with how I view humans. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting updates from Avalanche, one of the leading L1s. First, the Particle NFT sale powered by Avalanche. Particle has fractionalized high-end art into 10,000 NFTs. The first piece being Banksy's. Love is in the air. Check it out, particlecollection.com. Number two, an ILO initial litigation offering has started on avalanche in partnership with rival 
Rival with a Y, a community fundraising platform for court cases. Really interesting use case there. Uh, number three, enterprise partnerships growing on Avalanche. Deloitte recently partnered with them to optimize logistics around natural disaster relief and claims payouts. MasterCard also tapped them to help accelerate crypto startups. Uh, number four, last but not least, I got an early look at a report from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that shows the energy usage of various L1s. Avalanche came out very low in terms of total energy usage relative to other L1s. Thank you, Avalanche. Big thanks for sponsoring Empire. Now, let's get back to the show. This space in crypto, everyone always likes to talk about theory. What about practice? Are you actually practical? Like, like most systems should be tr governance minimized because... Again, the name of the game, attention, capturing attention is, is, is what this all boils down to. And it is very hard to capture attention over a long period of time and increasingly and maintain it. It's super hard. It's impossible. Yep. Like most of these funds are investing in so many different projects. They don't care. They don't have dedicated resources to actually stay on top of this stuff. The idea would be like Taleb would say, okay, if you have skin in the game in a system, you have a greater incentive to pay attention. But when you have multiple projects then it just becomes difficult. Um, and so, again, we ought to study. We shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel on some things. Like, there's a reason why representative democracies are the most effective forms of government. It's like Churchill said. Like, democracy is the worst type of government except all the others. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's not perfect. And and we're not, and, and I, I guess, like, these governance-heavy Latin systems are a little bit, like, it's a bit of a utopia, to assume that there's going to be high participation, but it's like, and a proof point of that, I was just, I was just in London like last week. And I, every time I go to London, I think about Brexit. Guess what was the number one searching trend on Google the following day after Brexit? Like how to vote or something like that? <laughs> no. What is the European Union? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everyone voted with their feet. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like we should probably leave the European Union because yeah, everyone's saying we should leave the European Union. Of course, like look, look the economy's bad. You know, all this stuff that no one actually has a proper understanding of what their what the European Union is. And so, I always like to remind myself of that. <laughs> saying, look, I'm not dismissive of the collective power of human consciousness and intellect. Like collectively, cooperatives are really interesting mechanisms where sort of this wisdom of the crowds, right? Which is the idea that you, Jason, the, the experiments of like how many jelly beans are in this jar. And like, so the average is sort of like a law of numbers of there's diversity and large numbers, and you can converge on the answer. These this is typically how things work and whatever. But sometimes like it is at odds with this idea that like, sometimes you don't get to the right answer. Yeah, but wisdom of the crowds is better. Wisdom of the crowds is better when people have an informed opinion on something. Like wisdom of the crowds, uh, like the common right. example yeah, is like, I, okay, there's there's a pig at a fair, right? And you've got like a thousand people walk by the pig. The best estimation of estimation of like how how much that pig weighs is like if you get all a thousand people to say how much it weighs, and that's fine because every person has the exact same input on like the ability to see how like fat a pig is or something like that, or like everyone has the exact same input on like what the weather might be tomorrow, right? We, we no one has, but like there are people who are much more in the MakerDAO, yeah. going back to MakerDAO, like there are people who just yeah. understand this stuff a hundred times better than, than the, everyone than, else. Than the hundred other MKR holders that are not even voting or the VC. Like the, the, the majority of any of the, not just Maker, like any of these DAOs, any of these projects, there's three types of people. There's a large majority who has no interest in participating in mm -hmm. governance. There is a small minority who delegates 
and an even smaller minority who actively participates in the governance. And that makes exact sense to me. And I think this yeah. concept of like every single person voting and there's all these DAO tools. I'm sure you saw like the decks and everyone's raising DAO tooling to improve the voting. Bullshit. That's not we're not getting Listen, we're not uh, getting 5000 uh, people to vote. <laughs> <laughs> I've looked at all of these. I've only made two bets. It's hard for me to believe that DAO tooling is like, look, a lot of it is predicated in really interesting behavior, organizational theory and, and fine. I, I get it. These are very, I don't know. I'm quite skeptical of a lot of this stuff. I think just going back to wisdom of the crowds. I mean, I think you need to have a sufficiently large N meaning number of participants, uh, emphasis on participants and two diversity. Uh, most of the time where these, the wisdom of the crowd theory fails is when you don't have diversity and some of these systems are not very diverse. Um, and, and also you don't have a large end of participation, people that actually have a proper understanding. Like maker is not an easy system to understand. And, and I can't tell you how many times I was in these community calls and everyone likes to talk about monetary policy and hawkish and dovish and all this garbage. I'm like, dude, have you ever used fucking maker? Like, no, I was like, all right, great, go and use it and then come back to me and then jump in all these pontification of like, whatever you think the system needs, right? Between now and then fuck off. And this is, this is why Parify was in how we did it. And this is why it's so successful. I know that none of this financial wise, but this is, this is successful in the sense of like, you want to build an edge, use these systems. Every time we, every time it's very clear, increasingly so when you come across a skeptic, there are, there's a very type of two different kinds of skeptics in crypto. One, which is I'm never, never has used crypto, right? And somehow hasn't, this is the Warren Buffett's of the world, Charlie Munger, all these idiots have failed to invest in technology. And yeah, I'm calling them idiots because it has been, to me, it is hard to increasingly, it's sort of like, look, I grew up admiring these people. They're super successful in what they do. But it's almost interesting, like Jamie Dimon, all these people, it's like, they have such a knee-jerk reaction to crypto, which is it betrays the number one rule in investing, which is always be willing to process new information and always have this intellectual curiosity. Like, never form an opinion without having actually, like, spent meaningful time. It is clear to me. Like, I understand stick to your lane. But I also don't understand. Don't talk about stuff you, you, you're not competent on, right? And it's very clear that these people, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's clear that they haven't used these systems. The other type of skeptic, which I have a lot of respect for, and I think we should be in, super skeptical as a community, is people that have, are in the weeds and saying, these systems are not perfect. Like, I don't think you and I have ever been of the mind that we're not maximalists. We, I don't pretend, and I will never, probably will ever say, these systems are perfect. Because no system is perfect. There's always trade-offs. And it's so early, Right. So anyways, this is sort of like a, a rant of mine, but I, I wanted to say it because I think Maker is a system that continues to attract these VC pontificators that haven't used the system. And so I think this is a great proposal in that regard. Is it perfect? No, but it's worth trying for sure because it just concentrates voting power to people that are really competent. Yeah. I want to dig back into the into this decision, right? Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. has this framework for like decision making, one way doors and two way doors, right? There are two basic kind of decisions you can make. One way door, these are decisions that are almost impossible to reverse, right? The door swings one way, firing an employee, selling your company, ending a vendor relationship, right? Uh, whatever it may be, getting married, right? Generally speaking, once, well, I guess you can get divorced, but once you make a one-way decision, there's no going back. Those are type one decisions, and you should spend a lot of time thinking about those. And then there are uh, two-way doors, right? Uh, like type two decisions. These decisions are like reversible. 
the door swings both ways, um, like hiring a new employee, right? You can do both things like starting a side hustle, providing a new service, like launching a new product. Like you can always pull it back, creating a new pricing model. These are not life and death situations. Uh, and you can kind of actually make them with little time and effort because they can be tweaked. They can be modified and they can even be reversed. This maker proposal seems like a type one decision, um, a one way door decision. So, you mentioned that you think that this could increase um, the like incentive for DAOs to hold Maker uh, or GB mm-hmm. Maker, um, and that like it kind of aligns long term value. Arca uh, and some other folks like this guy Nick Kunkel on the Nick who works at who works in the Oracle team at Maker, smart guy. Yeah, push back on it. Or, I don't know Nick, but I'm reading his stuff. Mm-hmm. Governance mm-hmm. participate. What Nick said is governance participa- participation for Maker is already paltry. Um, Adding lockups without incentives to participate in governance won't stimulate anyone to lock up their tokens, right? It won't stimulate the majority of people who have no interest in participating in governance to actually lock up their tokens. Uh, and members of set B and set C, right, the small minority who delegate and the small minority who mm-hmm. who actively participate, um, you know, they're already participating in governance and they tend not to sell. So some s- mm-hmm. subset will stop participating in governance due to their you know, they don't have the desire to actually lock up their tokens. So the way that Nick says it is this is actually going to de- decrease the amount of participation. Mm. I actually don't believe that. That's not, I mean, no, no, because you're essentially getting more weight in your voting proposal. In, 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 if you're, okay, fine. If, if you're not going to sell, fine, you're going to lock it for four years. There, there's a sort of a curve, right? If you lock it up for, it really increases like the, the marginal increase in your governance, as I understand the format, the, the marginal increase in, in, the, in the weight of increased governance power decreases in some curve like you locking it up in incremental three to four years is not the same of you locking it from zero to one year so i think like there has been a common criticism of like there are very very engaged community members that don't hold a lot of mkr sometimes get their delegated their a vote to them but look if they're not the selling is almost like irrelevant in this case the more important thing is you want to get more weight behind you know, your opinion. And, you know, I think, I think it, it, look, it's not on the margin. I think it improves it. Um, and so like Nick, Nick's argument is sort of like one of those that says it sort of criticizes maker, but it doesn't kind of address like this, this proposal is marginally better, better than the existing system, than the existing construct. Like he says, you add lockups without incentives to participate in governance won't stimulate anyone. I think what you're missing is, okay, should you add some sort of economic incentive for people? Maybe like I've, we've actually, I've talked to maker team a lot. It's like, Hey, we should pay people to be representatives in this system. Like I agree with that. I mean, it's not mutually exclusive. Like you can still have this and give people more weight to their holding. If they're long-term believers, I think anyone would appreciate that whether you're a small holder or a large holder, you want to get more governance power if you're, if you're committed to the network. And I almost like, don't, I almost think Nick's argument is irrelevant. Sort of missed the entire point of this proposal. I don't know what Arca is saying. I'm just kind of reading this on the fly, but I don't know if you're, you've read it and I could summarize what, what, what Jeff and team out there um, believe in. No, I don't feel confident to do that. Yeah. Jeff is coming on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, so Great. I'd rather yeah. ask him. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like Arca is just like, they know they're the activists in the space. So they just need to make noise in every proposal. But sometimes it just clear to me that like, I don't know. 
Yeah. Sometimes it's pretty odd. Uh, this to me feels mm-hmm. like uh, an early trend in what is going to continue to be common this year, which is first gen DeFi projects like the Aves, the Uniswaps, the makers of the world that are almost considered like utilities in DeFi or like value bets proposing big changes to tokenomics that will potentially serve as the growth catalyst they need to kind of reset their multiples that are typically applied to DeFi. You've got like a whole swath mm-hmm. of DeFi that trades at much higher multiples than these like early like tier one blue chip DeFi projects. And I think the blue chip DeFi projects are going to uh, make some changes to their tokenomics this year. Again, I have no inside info here. I have no, I have no clue what folks are going to do. I'm just seeing this maker one and saying that to me, this makes sense. To me, the maker proposal makes a lot of sense. And so I think other folks are going to continue to do this. Yeah. Look, uh, just to round out this discussion, I think it's, it's, an, it's a healthy debate to have amongst these communities of how to prevent governance attacks, how to improve governance participation, how to align incentives within these communities, and how to prevent these DAO attacks, which are very credible and will only continue. We haven't seen a very serious governance attacks where you can borrow tokens and then you can attack the network. If you have a lot of these tokens locked and people that believe in four years, then it almost by default doesn't like det- detracts or deters you, 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 these sort of like bad actors that want to borrow MKR quickly, put, put forth a proposal and then try to sway governance this way. You know what I mean? Like, so anyways, people can always be bribed off chain or, or increasingly like on chain or, or increasingly off chain. So quick update on the wormhole situation. Jump crypto just tweeted out jump believes in a multi-chain future and that wormhole crypto is essential infrastructure. That's why we replaced 120,000 ETH to make community members whole and support wormhole now as it continues to develop. So our speculation is true. Um, all right. Last thing here. This is like, I've, I have no clue here because I don't own a punk. Hmm. I'm not deep in the punk community. What's going on with punks? Why are, why is everyone hating on Larva Labs? It seems like my two sentence understanding is that like originally there were these crypto punks that were released, but there was a bug in the system. So then they had to release a new set of crypto punks. The new set of crypto punks are actually like the ones that we all know and love as the crypto punks. But now what Larva Labs did is they released the V1 crypto punks on the community. I don't even know if there was some price associated with it. I think there was a price. Uh, And then they said like, but these punks were going to donate all of the money to the rainforest. That's all I know. So (laughs) what's going on here? Well, I'm seeing a tweet from uh, Jan 25. Like this is pretty old. PSA V1 punks are not official crypto punks. We don't like them. And we got a thousand of them. So draw your own conclusions. Any proceeds will be used to purchase real crypto punks. I think they're just trying to say, look, v, this V1 punks. It reminds me of like that the rock, Ether Rock, right? There was like Ether Rocks, and then there was like a prior bug in the contract, and and then someone tried to revive that contract. But I, I actually don't know much about this, candidly, much to my shame, I guess. Here, like I, I don't know. I consider myself a pretty, I love punks, but um, I thought I thought you were alluding to the criticism that Larva Labs typically always gets, which is you're not open source. People cannot market punks. It's not like Creative Commons, and I think they made a step actually in the right direction. But this this preceded like this this was like last year, and I think they 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 kind of are aware of this criticism and are trying to improve it. But I don't know what this V punk situation is. I have no idea where these thousand punks are coming from. I think the big thing that people are kind of upset about is that one of the founders of Larva Labs sold all forty of his V one punks. Um, like a week ago for mm-hmm. about 250 or 260 ETH, which is a hefty chunk of change. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then Larva Labs, like a couple days later, released an official statement saying that all V1 punks are worthless. So, you know, founder sells a bunch of them, makes 250, oh. 260 ETH, and then they say that they're worthless. But all right, it doesn't seem like a big deal then if you don't <laughs> care about it. In general, I'm going to, before getting into the news, I am feeling like we are starting to enter the disenchantment phase of crypto. Things are breaking. Things are going wrong. I will say when things like this happen, it usually draws out longer than people think. Um but this is usually the time to start making angel investments, start maybe finding buying opportunities, start reassessing your portfolio, start thinking about start like coming to permissionless, start coming to permissionless. <laughs> Sadi, I love that you're just pumping permissionless now. That's amazing. I'm excited. Dude, you, uh, oh my God, you would love, we're working on this NFT gallery. I actually haven't shared much about it publicly. We're working on this NFT oh. gallery. We're also, um, we've got like a lot of different folks who want to like sponsor the nft gallery like some mm-hmm. some pretty big names and like we're just gonna oh, it's gonna be so good it's gonna be the best i i will mark my words right mm-hmm. here on this podcast it's gonna be the best nft gallery that anyone has ever created ever like in the history of crypto oh, wow. in the history of nft galleries yeah it's gonna be insane oh wow um so so you know like as an aside i love this uh the there's this kind of quasi royal or i guess you'd say royal family in the czech republic they exhibited digital art with they have one of the largest art collections in Europe and they have this like castle in Prague which is impressive and they have old art and then they they did this event where they had old art and next to it like new art like NFTs and 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 uh, a few of my punks were like featured there it was pretty awesome I wasn't no there live but uh, I saw pictures and it was like the contrast the juxtaposition of old art new art and his great event was was pretty awesome I heard it was a great event uh but yeah I'm excited you know if if you need some jpegs uh I'd be happy to uh either through PleaserDAO or my collection you know be happy to Do you want to uh do you want to showcase your collection? Maybe yeah. <laughs> right, cool. Let's do it. We'll set it up. Uh, let me ask you a question just on this topic. Yeah. Do you think that people will be different in the metaverse? Like we talk a lot about curating your identity in the digital context by design, meaning you purposely are building your identity. A lot of it is tied to an on culture or just the ability to create a new identity. This is powerful for Web3, which is most people don't care what you look like. Most people use avatars as profile pictures. And I think there's something like beautiful about that, which is you, there's a, an ability to construct a new identity increasingly that has a lot of impact in a digital context, right? Because the reach and the distribution is, is, is vast. If you're an artist, you do a concert in the metaverse. If you're an intellectual or whatever, you're someone, you just go to the metaverse, right? You start interacting. But do you think that like people will be very different behaving and the things they wear, the things they say? There is, we known for a while, like the, some of these communities in Reddit, like people, what they say online is different if they know that it's tied to the real identity and there's like accountability and reputation that's what i was going to say it all depends on if you are doxxed or not like if you are Mm. uh, it all depends on if people know it's you or if they don't know it's you like think about well just think about ready player one people always go back to ready player one too much like it's 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 very overused these days but like ready player one like if you think to the game like some people are basically just create the characters that look exactly like themselves and some people end up being like dragons and horses and you know just you know different skin color and even different genders right so yeah, but would you wear, like, different clothes? Would you wear, like, a neon sweater in the metaverse? Or would you wear your same Oh, so I'm crazy, just, a neon sweater. No, uh, well, okay, I'm, just, I'm just trying to, like, simple things like that, you know what I mean? Like, it starts like that, but, like, then if that's true, then what else is true, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I think it's, like, people 
have fantasies about what they could become or what they have. And you'll see that you can, you can, you can create that. Right. So some people, some people want to be, are short. They want to be tall. Some people are tall. They want to be short. Some people are skinny. They want to be like, have a lot of muscle. Some people are like really large and they want to be skinnier. Some people have are male and they want to be female. Some people are human and like, they don't want to be human. And uh, the, the only reason I ask is as a, as a subtle, I was just noticing this today, but uh, what's the name? The witches, right? There's these like uh, collection yeah. of NFTs that are a lot of a lot of okay. They seem feminine to me. Um, I think they, I mean, they're witches. I, most of them are like female avatars, but a lot of guys have them too. And the question there is, it was just an interesting observation. It said, would you put a, a, a avatar of a different gender? What is gender in the metaverse? Can we have net, neutral avatars? Do we then stop thinking about gender too much or color of the skin? You know what I mean? Like when you can have a skin the color of neon, right? Hair that you ne- physically is not possible, then does that like just expand or place less of an importance on physical traits and then just, I think, becomes like a more, more cooler environment? Yeah. Something to think about. Um, all right, a couple minutes left here. Um, big news stuff in the week. I mean, there's. We can go. I'm going to almost skim through a lot of this. Um, okay, okay. Can, can I jump to one, which is super yeah. powerful? I think GameStop partnering with Immutable X. I think it launched, announced today. Um, incredible stuff, I think. Like, you know, uh, it's really cool, I think, to see GameStop, which is probably attracting the same crowd that is interested in, in, in owning, you know, Obviously, what we saw these meme stocks, right, and, and uh, GameStop movement. You know, it's pretty interesting to then, as Robbie kind of crystallizes. I think it it, it put places again emphasis on a type of people that value being you know having digital property and being in control of their own property, right? And so, and censorship resistance. So that's pretty cool, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Immutable X has just done a great job in general of partnering with uh, like Tier One. Uh, and yes, GameStop is still Tier One uh, brands from the traditional like Web Two world, Web even. I don't know what you call GameStop Web One or whatever you want to call it. I think they previously partnered with uh, with TikTok um, mm-hmm. for TikTok's first foray into uh, into NFTs, which I've heard is uh, about to get even more exciting. Um, hmm. So, yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, first off, two exciting new unicorns. One is Phantom. Basically, Phantom is like the MetaMask of Solana. Uh, I think is maybe a fair description of that. Uh, they yeah. raised 109 million, uh, hit unicorn status. Also, big shout out to Dune Analytics, hit unicorn status. I love Dune. We're going to work end up working with Dune on something kind of soon, which we'll share more about soon. Um, Dune only has 16 employees. Hit unicorn. Freaking love it. They, in their early days, tried pitching VCs over and over and over again. Did not work that well, or so I've heard. Mm-hmm. And so big shout out to the Dune team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a unicorn 32 times over. Uh, FTX is now valued at $32 billion after their third fundraise in six months. Um, FTX, $32 billion. FTX US is now valued at $8 billion. Uh, that puts the FTX organization collectively at over $40 billion. I think that is higher than Coinbase's valuation now which is why that is interesting to me let's see mm-hmm. coinbase market cap coinbase market cap 39.84 billion oh, okay. ftx 
has the same or slightly higher valuation to Coinbase. Obviously, Coinbase has a more liquid uh, market cap in the public markets, which have been hit pretty hard recently. But yeah, I mean, FTX launched 2019. Pretty crazy. They've already yeah. passed Coinbase. The beast. Absolute beast. Beast. Um, we also had a big scoop. Castle Island Ventures, Nick Carter's firm, raising hundreds of millions of dollars for their new fund. Uh, this is interesting for me because there's obviously a lot of funds raising money. Nick Carter's has focused... Uh, almost entirely on Bitcoin-related companies uh, rather than like deep crypto, DeFi, metaverse stuff. They are like very focused on infrastructure and like the Bitwises and Blockfolios and I think BlockFi mm-hmm. maybe, like those type mm-hmm. of companies of the world. So um, Casa, Arisex, MoonPay, River Financial, mm-hmm. like almost these like infrastructure companies. And I feel like those were... I'm young because I think it's boring, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 I get it. Look, look, I'm an investor in BlockFi, an investor in Lenin. I'm an investor in a lot of these things. No, but what's interesting is like, do these companies... Is there another wave of these companies or like, did we already get these companies and we're kind of done, right? Like, is there... I'm not sure there's going to be another BlockFi. I feel like BlockFi kind of solidified themselves. I mean, the, the yeah, next BlockFi hopefully will be built fully on DeFi rails, right? I think it's called Aave. Funny, so. those are mostly centralized institutions. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, ancillary pit, picks and shovels of crypto. Fine, great. Uh, I'd be curious to understand how he's going to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into that strategy, but good for him. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's cool. That's why, yeah, that's what I'm interested to see. So, uh, M&A coin, uh, consensus acquired... Uh, really, I guess, yeah, Consensus, which owns MetaMask. Consensus acquired uh, open source Ethereum wallet, my crypto, to expand MetaMask. Um, Big time. Shout out to Tay. Tay Tay's fantastic. I mean, she's one of the best, like, most critical, but also, like, she keeps this space honest. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy. It sounds like a great outcome. And, and, and you know, my, my crypto's done so much for the space. And, and now joining, you know, obviously Juggernaut Consensus. Yeah. I mean, they've, my crypto has been consistently one of the most reliable and like intercompatible wallets in in Ethereum. And I, you know, ever since I've been in the space that I think they were launched in like 2015, I want to say. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. um, Other acquisition, FTX again, FTX acquired Liquid Group. Um, Liquid Group is an exchange, uh, I think was the first exchange that got licensed in Japan back in 2017. And so this means to me that they're going to make a big push into Japan. No brainer, but not that interesting, but good for FTX. Japan is one of those markets that I think you need to acquire uh, and have a local partner. And so that makes yeah. sense. And also has one of the highest, vol- like it used to for a long time, just be a super active Bitcoin market. One of the highest, like in terms of volume and adoption. Yeah. Um, Arizona considers making Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, I don't think this is, I think this is like a, I think, I think this is one senator in Arizona wanted this. I don't, I mm-hmm. don't think it's going to happen i'll say you one thing i think these senators understand that they want to appeal to a young constituent base and they do these proposals to just like for the election cycles which is great look it forwards the conversation and it, it, it's a good it's it's a catchy headline but still i think i think this will not be i think this is an early indication of trends as we head into election cycle like the next election would just be a lot of this stuff i think this is a much bigger trend than that in my mind uh Bitcoin in in Mike's mind is entering its final phase. So 2009 to 2012, you've got like peer to peer digital cash. 2013 to 2016, the narrative shifts to payments. Then the, the narrative starts moving in 2017 and kind of culminates in this like COVID and money printer with the store value narrative. And starting mm-hmm. this year, money uh, Bitcoin is starting to become money for sovereign nations and sovereign citizens. Yeah. You're start, you're getting into the game theory uh, amongst governments. Uh, that piece of that chess game uh, is is entering now. Like the the game theory of governments to governments, increasingly like you know El Salvador started it, but it's, now you're going to see it. Yeah, exactly. 
Last two things, NFTs just continuing to absolutely rip. $7 billion January, all-time high. OpenSea did, I think, $5 billion of that. Um, Just a massive January. I'm personally shocked by this. Um, I mean, I'd love to see it, but I thought thought that we were kind of getting a little toppy and that uh, things were going to come down a little bit, but I was wrong. Uh, And Bored Apes, obviously, just continuing to to have a phenomenal time. So... Mm -hmm. The last thing is Solana, Solana rolled out Solana Pay that will connect merchants and consumers via stablecoin payments. Um, ben Foreman, I think, was the one who mentioned this. Payments are still mm-hmm. the biggest untapped area of crypto. Absolutely. Solana plus Phantom plus Circle plus USDC just checkmated Visa, and I love to see it. Uh, Visa is obviously crushing it. Shout out um, the whole Visa team over there. I, I love those guys, but uh, with Solana meets Phantom meets USDC, damn, you got yourself a nice B2B to C application right there. What is the best, uh, what is the best purchase that you've made over the last like six months or 12 months? Like just like, something that's like, made you super happy. Like, a Oh, a well, you know purchase. this Jason, I was in London for a reason. I, I became the rarest collector of Harry Potter books. Oh, I was trying to get you to pull it out. I didn't know if you could uh, share it on this one or next time. I did. I know. Right, I'll big, showcase big it. Scoop. <laughs> yeah. All right, tell us about it. Hold on. Back up. So you became the collector of the rarest Harry Potter, Harry Potter collection? It is, is the only Harry Potter books known that are inscribed. It was a source of inspiration for the Chamber of Secrets. This person that I bought it from is J.K. Rowling's, J.K. Rowling's best friend at university. They met under a sink, which ser- served as the inspiration for Chamber of Secrets. And obviously J.K. Rowling being, I mean, she was, she, these are books that were given to, to his best friend, um, and ended up buying the collection. And it's pretty awesome because what I liked about this the most is, you know, it, it was at a time where J.K. Rowling wasn't famous or as famous. And so you sense the insecurity in her and the way she writes, she writes notes in the book, like halfway through the book that says, Hey, like, I know it's really boring, but keep reading, please. Um, it's the only copy of ever Harry Potter books that are like, ins- like annotated inside the so book. So you see a lot of them are Rowling's annotations inside annotations, of this collection. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also really cool features. Like this friend was like, again, really close to her and served as inspiration for Chamber of Secrets. And I don't know, it's just, there's a lot of rarity to this collection. I ended up buying that. And then I bought, um, a few other like early, like I, I bought the a very small booklet that is like the shopping list for Diagon Alley, which is uh, references like a piece of the philosopher's stone of the first book when Harry is going into Diagon Alley to buy all this stuff. And like, you know, um, so I bought that, uh, and I have other pieces in the collection, like, you know, rare like pre-prints that they sent to editors to like just send their feedback and so you know i love harry potter this is my vision of collecting uh, you know maybe collecting rare books is not something that you know most people think of but uh, i love harry potter it's so influential to me i can't think of more influential piece of literature to our generation my vision is at some point i hope that jk rowling changes her tune on crypto because this, there's a lot of magic in this space good magic um, we're reinventing technology is magical. And so I, this is why I love Harry Potter and I love technology. And so it speaks to everything that I love in this world. I mean, there's no surprise. My Twitter handle is I like crypto and Harry Potter. Like these are the two <laughs> things that I care about the most. And so I did that in, in hopes of, uh, at some point talking to JK Rowling about things that, uh, this magical internet money that we talk about. And I think, I think it will take time, but I think, uh, I'm, that is a project that I'm actively working on. 
No, I think I think it's interesting, Santi, to think about like what are the most influential books in history. Like the you know when 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 you when you have like the uh, on the origin of species or like probably Karl Marx's the Communist Manif- Manif- uh, Manifesto or like Plato's The Republic or uh, maybe like uh, Adam Smith Wealth of Nations or probably I would I would even put 1984 in there. Um, and yeah, there's they're all there. Yeah, it's like what yeah. what else uh, what what happened in our industry that will make it so that you know either mm-hmm. our industry was never the same or even that the world was never the same. Mm-hmm. And the obvious one is Bitcoin, but like you know one mm-hmm. thing that you will find when talking to people who have been in the industry for a very long time the 2013 bitcoin conference like things were not the same mm-hmm. after the 2013 bitcoin conference and so no yeah absolutely absolutely yes exactly um all right i gotta jump this has been awesome um anyways <laughs> man all right um be well guys uh talk to you all soon uh and if you want to uh join the team come apply for the crypto podcast producer role see you guys next week thank you jason thanks everyone for listening take care see ya